This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. I'd, uh, just a word of explanation and apology to start. Um, uh, our class time today is going to be cut rather short. Um, a lady in the congregation where I pastor died this past weekend, and the funeral is this morning. Was, the family couldn't do it any other time. Uh, so I'm going to have to leave at 9.30. <laughs> uh, so um, we have about 30 minutes of lecture, and then um, y'all are free to sit and discuss covenant theology amongst yourselves, uh, and we'll, we'll pick back up next week. I, I do apologize. Uh, some family coming in from out of town couldn't do it any other time. But um, anyway, so we'll, we'll go ahead and get started and go for about 30 minutes, and then we'll have to break early. Uh, last week, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, uh, we had gotten to, uh, we were working through the Noahic covenant, and we had said that... Um, even as you start into that covenant, that two things are rather clear. First of all, Noah is a man who's saved by the gracious initiative of God. Uh, God comes and turns Noah's heart, and then Noah is found to be righteous because of God's work. Uh, And then secondly, uh, we saw that the Noahic covenant is forwarding the purpose of the covenant of grace through the means of the covenant of grace. It's not some uh, categorically different covenant that's under the covenant of grace temporally, but not necessarily thematically. It's moving forward the same uh, redemption that God has been accomplishing um, throughout uh, the covenant of grace to that point. We uh, had seen those things last week. and It was very clear that uh, the Noahic covenant is a gracious covenant. It's part of the covenant of grace uh, in every way. But it's also, uh, you, you note as you work through the Noahic covenant that just as it's clear that grace is at work in Noah and through Noah, it's also clear that Noah has been given work that he needs to do. Uh, no sooner do you read of Noah being given this uh, gracious righteousness in Genesis 6-9, than you almost immediately read of God giving Noah commands. Uh, in verse 13 of Genesis 6, Uh, God tells Noah of this coming creation-wide judgment that he's about to bring. And then in verse 14, God tells Noah to build an ark. He tells him to build this ark out of gopher wood, which is probably something like cypress wood. Uh, Then he begins to give Noah these very precise details about the ark that he's to build. He gives the dimensions, uh, the materials that are to be used in building it. Uh, They're given the, the, the scope of... Uh, this portion of the scriptures is pretty, pretty detailed instructions that are being given to Noah. Uh, and when you get down a couple of verses later into verses 19 through 21, uh, Noah is instructed not only what to build and how to build it, but he's told what to put in the boat that he builds. Uh, Noah is to gather two of every kind of animal. He's supposed to gather sufficient provision for all of those creatures uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, Noah is, in pretty short scope, he's given a pretty extensive list of commands. And then when you get to verse 22, 
as chapter 6 is drawing to a close, you see that after Noah has received all of this detailed instruction, he obeys it. He does everything that the Lord has commanded him to do. Now, I think at that point it's, it's safe to make a, a pretty elementary observation. Without verse 22 of Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 21 of Genesis chapter 6 would have been pretty pointless. Uh, Noah would have received God's grace, he would have heard God's voice, and then he would have drowned in the flood having not built an ark. Um, I don't mean that to seem irreverent. Um, Certainly God could have saved Noah without the ark if he wanted to, um, but I mean it rather to make a point. Uh, We we said back toward the beginning of the class that there's uh, a tendency within a good bit of covenant theology to make a, a pretty sharp distinction between what are called law covenants and promise covenants. Uh, law covenants referring to covenants where mankind is required to render some sort of obedience and promise covenants referring to covenants that are entirely one-sided or entirely promissory on God's part. Uh, These promise covenants are all promise and no command, no law. Uh, That uh, dichotomy between law covenants and promise covenants uh, has a lot of its current foundation in the thought of Meredith Klein. Uh, You see it in the book by Mike Horton that we're reading. There's this division between a promise covenant and a law covenant. And within this impulse to divide covenants into two different camps, the Noahic covenant always is included in the promise covenant category. It's seen as being this covenant in which God makes unilateral promises uh, that really have nothing to do with man's obedience. They have no bearing on man's obedience. Man's obedience has no bearing on them. Uh, there seems to be entirely uh, grant and no command, no law of any sort. In fact, in the case of the, Mosaic, uh, the Noahic Covenant, you even have John Murray aligning himself with that same sort of approach. Uh, if you remember, we said that um, John Murray understands a covenant to be entirely a bestowal of divine favor, divine blessing. Um, And he bases that definition of covenant on the Noahic covenant. It's sort of Murray's paradigmatic covenant. And he says that this covenant with Noah shows us uh, that there is absolutely no room within covenants for man's um, obedience, uh, for any sort of command from God. So from both the Kleinian camp and Murray's camp, there's this impulse to see the Noahic covenant as having nothing to do with any divine command, nothing to do with any uh, obedience on Noah's part. Um, It's seen as being entirely uh, one-sided. But it seems to me that's to neglect the simple and obvious fact that Noah had to build the ark. Um, when When God first comes to Noah, after he's told Noah about the judgment that's coming, the first thing that he does is to give Noah this extensive list of commands. Uh, Noah's, uh, or God's giving Noah a description of the ark, but it's a description that Noah is to follow in building the boat. Uh, and then when you get to the very close of chapter 6, in verse 22, you see that Noah renders this obedience to the word of God. So it seems to me fairly self-evident that in the Noahic covenant, there's both promise and command. Uh, there's a promise from God, there's God's gracious initiative in the covenant, 
but there are also instructions given to Noah that he must follow. Now, of course, both God's command to Noah to build this ark and Noah's obedience to the command, uh, both of them are necessarily preceded by God's grace. Uh, They're necessarily preceded by God sovereignly choosing Noah and turning his heart, uh, making him a man who uh, is found righteous in God's sight. All of it, none of it would have happened without God's grace shown to Noah in chapter 6, verse 8. God doesn't need Noah's contribution uh, for his covenant purposes to move forward. But all the same, the one to whom uh, God has shown grace, uh, to the one whose obedience has been made possible by God's grace, God does give command. And it's through Noah's obedience to that command that God's covenant purposes comes to pass. Now, his covenant purpose is unstoppable. It could have occurred regardless of what Noah did. But in God's economy, it is through Noah's obedience that God's unstoppable covenant moves forward. So, in that respect, I think the Noahic covenant proves to be somewhat uh, paradigmatic, although not necessarily in the way that John Murray meant. Uh, From the very first of the historical covenants, from this very first of the concrete historical outworkings of the covenant of grace, we see that these historical covenants, as they come one after the other, all of them will be sovereignly initiated by divine grace, but then to those who have been saved by that grace, certain commands will be given. Now, of course, the, you know, the focus or the, the emphasis in various covenants will be different. You know, some will emphasize Uh, the gracious initiative more, some will emphasize the commands that are given more, Uh, but throughout you have both elements. Uh, There's always gracious initiative, and then there's always obedience following that gracious initiative. Uh, You see it here at the very start with Noah, and you find it throughout as you move through the covenants. Uh, So I think it's, it's important for us to bear that in mind as we start into the Noahic covenant. There's this uh, initiating divine grace and then there's also command given to those who have received the grace. Um, that is an important thing to notice here, an important thing to trace as we move through God's covenants. Um, God graciously turns Noah's heart, then he gives Noah commands, Noah renders obedience to those commands, and then when you get into chapter 7, Noah and his entire family go into the ark. Um, you know, in the excitement of the flood and you know all of the the judgment and the uh, the building of the ark the collecting of the animals the rain the drying of the rain all the uh, details of the flood it's easy it seems to me to minimize that detail to minimize the fact that Noah and his entire household are delivered in the ark um, it might not seem overly significant that it's Noah and all of his uh, household, but it actually is quite important. It's something that uh, you will have seen in your reading uh, on the Noahic covenant, uh, the, the importance of the fact that it's not just Noah in this ark that he's built, but it's Noah and all of his household. Uh, it's striking the way that uh, God speaks in chapter 7, verse 1 of Genesis, back in, uh, of course, in Chapter 6, verse 22, 
We had read that Noah did according to all that God commanded him. And then you get into chapter 7, verse 1. And the Scriptures say, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, if you um, were reading in the, the Hebrew where the, uh, some of the particulars of the grammar are more uh, noticeable, then you'll see that when God says, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me. The you there is in the second person singular. God is saying to Noah, Bring all your household into the ark, because you, Noah, have been found righteous. All of Noah's household is spared from the flood because Noah has found grace in God's sight. And from this very first historical outworking of the covenant of grace, you see that God's redemptive covenantal work with His elect will impact the elect's households, their families, those who are attached to them, those who come under their authority. Now, the graciously given righteousness of Noah is having very tangible, life-saving implications for his family. Now, by the time you get to the end of the flood account, uh, the, or the account of the flood and even its aftermath, you realize that not all of Noah's children share the faith of their father. Not all of them are of God's elect. Uh, specifically, when you get into chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, uh, you've would have just read of Noah's uh, various indiscretions. And then you see that Noah, because of the way that his sons handled his indiscretion, you'll find that uh, Noah curses Ham, one of his sons, and he blesses Shem and Japheth. Uh, You could say he kind of blesses Shem a little bit more strongly than Japheth, but he blesses two of his sons and he curses one of them. Uh, to speak in sort of current evangelical terms, you would say that not all of Noah's children are regenerate, and not all of his children evidently will be regenerate. But nonetheless, back before the flood came, all of them experienced some blessing through God's covenantal dealings with Noah. Uh, God's redemptive work with Noah has implications for Noah's entire household, regardless of the spiritual condition or the coming spiritual condition of any of them. Uh, There's this theme that will resurface repeatedly in God's covenantal dealings with His people. Uh, His redemptive work with His elect has implications for their households. Um, We've already noticed uh, a couple minutes ago that in the Noahic covenant, you see both the promise and the law aspects of covenant running side by side interacting with each other, God's gracious choice of Noah, as well as his instruction and his command to Noah. And here you also see that both the particular aspects of God's covenant and what you might call the broad aspects of God's covenant also run side by side. Uh, They both interact with each other in God's covenant work. On the one hand, uh, the Noahic covenant is exceedingly particular. Out of all of humanity, out of all of Uh, The men who were on the earth at the time, God chose one man. Uh, And this one man, God turns his heart, he delivers him, uh, he uh, preserves him through the coming judgment. Out of 
the entire mass of humanity at that time, one man is made pleasing in God's sight. It's hard to think of something that's more uh, particular than that. But at the same time, and actually, in fact, through that particularity, the Noahic covenant also is quite broad. Uh, God's redemptive work with this one man has very clear, tangible, preserving implications for that one man's entire household. Uh, for some within Noah's household, that, uh, those preserving implications will later be improved into redemptive implications, uh, redemptive blessings. Uh, for others within Noah's household, they won't be. But regardless of what happens later, uh, God's redemptive work with Noah and through Noah has implications for Noah's household. So just as the Noahic covenant shows us that God's covenant uh, can be both law and command at the same, or both uh, promise and command at the same time, we also see that God's covenant is both particular in its redemption and broad in its implications. Uh, there's, there's no uh, dichotomization between the two. Uh, God's uh, covenant that redeems a very particular, very specific group of people, the elect, uh, has implications uh, beyond simply the elect. So, thus far it seems that we have seen that the Noahic covenant is uh, paradigmatic for all of God's covenantal dealings uh, in at least those two ways. Um, on the one hand, uh, God's covenant of grace involves both graciously given blessings to His people uh, and the resulting obediential response from His people. That's one way in which it's paradigmatic. Uh, the other way uh, is that God's covenant is both particular in its redemption and broad in its implications. Uh, those are two themes that we can find in the Noahic covenant and that we'll continue to see uh, given greater detail as we move uh, through God's covenantal work in the Scriptures. Are there any questions on either of those? Um, I don't know what uh, any of those two observations. Um, they normally just stop before you get to the um, before you would even get to the building of the ark. The focus is entirely on God choosing Noah and showing him grace and telling him to, to build the ark so that he's spared. That um, they, they tend to not um, not handle it by distorting it, but handle it by ignoring it. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean that to be uncharitable, but um, it just generally isn't addressed. And then you, you certainly do, as you get uh, post-flood, you continue to see some commands that are given um, that, uh, that likewise aren't necessarily dealt with too much. Anything else? All right, we'll keep...
moving along. Um, well, hopefully, uh, some of that has highlighted the fact that the Noahic covenant isn't quite as simple as it appears at first. Uh, there's a great deal of richness in the Noahic covenant uh, that gives us an insight into uh, the entire covenant of grace as we get into it. Um, you, know, you have both Noah and his family, you know, particular and broad, gathered into this ark uh, that they built in response to God's gracious word to Noah. And so you have both uh, the promise and the command. And then, with all that having been accomplished, the judgment begins. Uh, the judgment that is described uh, throughout chapters 7 through 9, uh, particularly chapters 7 and 8, I suppose, if you're speaking just of the judgment, um, the judgment that's described there is very clearly a cataclysmic judgment. Uh, on the one hand, there are just innumerable tons of water uh, that, that come upon the earth. Uh, according to chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, uh, the waters rise to such a height that if you're speaking in um, modern terms of you know, what we might say today, the, from what the, the passage says, the waters would have risen uh, to a point that they would have been 22 and a half feet higher than the peak of Mount Everest. So, you know, the waters were, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good bit of water uh, that came on the earth, and Noah and his family are floating on top of all of it uh, in this ark that they've built. But as, as awe-inspiring as the sheer amount of water is, uh, there's even more to God's judgment than just, you know, a whole, a whole mess of water. Uh, to appreciate the true nature of the judgment that God's bringing in the flood, it seems to me you have to bear in mind, as you're reading the, about the judgment, you have to bear in mind the creation account uh, with which Moses had begun the book of Genesis. Um, just to refresh our memories on that creation account, if you look back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, there uh, God had been, or rather Moses, uh, Moses had been describing the second day of creation. And he said that on the second day of creation, uh, God had created the firmament. This is what it's called in my translation. Uh, God had created the firmament, the rakia in the, the Hebrew. And, there, and there's a good bit of uncertainty about exactly what the firmament was. Uh, but it evidently was some sort of divider between the waters that were under the firmament and the waters that were above the firmament. Now, the, the word rakia in the Hebrew, uh, when it appears other places in the Old Testament, uh, it always refers to a solid mass, uh, something that's stretched out or even a, a metal that's hammered out, uh, but it always refers to a solid mass. Um, and one possible way to interpret it here in Genesis 1 um, is to interpret it again as being some sort of a solid mass. Uh, that's the, the position that uh, Dr. Currid takes in his uh, commentary on Genesis. Uh, I think he rightly says that we should take the word at face value as being some sort of a solid firmament on top of which there was a large sea and underneath which was all of the universe. Almost like a, a roof to the universe 
with a sea sitting on top of the roof. Now, obviously, that's nothing like the world we know today, uh, but it was also the world before the flood, and we're in the world after the flood. Uh, we can't, uh, can't forget the, the, just the, the categorical change that came into creation with the flood. Uh, evidently, before the flood, there was this roof uh, to the universe that was separating between the upper waters and the lower waters. Uh, that was on day two of the creation. And then when you get into Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Moses moves on to describe the third day of creation. And on that third day, the waters that were under the firmament, the waters on the earth, so to speak, were all gathered together uh, into you know, specific localities that allowed dry land to appear. And as the waters were gathered together, when they left certain places, uh, those places uh, became dry land. So over the course of the second and third day of God's creation, God had taken what evidently had been this massive watery earth, and he had created first a firmament to separate between the lower waters and the upper waters, and then he had gathered the lower waters into very specific locations so that you had what we would call oceans today, and then dry land. God then on that dry land placed vegetation, then animals, then humanity. God had pent up the waters in various places, thereby allowing life to appear on the earth. Now with all of that in mind, you know, this, the separation of the waters on day two and three of the creation, look back at the account of the flood in chapter 7. And specifically look at verses 11 and 12. In Genesis 7, verses 11 and 12, we, we read this. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, in light of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, do you get a, a sense of what is happening there in the flood? Now, the scriptures say that when God brought the flood, He did so by, on the one hand, breaking up the fountains of the great deep, and on the other hand, by opening the windows of heaven. Now, in the creation, God had separated between the upper waters and the lower waters, and he had separated between the seas and the dry land. But then in the flood, all of those divisions disappeared. Uh, the earth was plunged back into the state in which it had been on the second day of creation. Uh, God isn't just sending a really long, really heavy rainstorm. Uh, God is literally unraveling the creation. Uh, he is reverting uh, the world back to what it had been before the separation of the waters. Uh, you get that same uh, emphasis, that almost undoing of creation uh, when you get into the aftermath of the flood. Uh, after the, the flood has come, in chapter 8, verse 1, the scriptures say that this, as God is beginning to dry up the waters, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says that God made a wind to pass over the water. And as you may know, or remember, back in chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, in the creation account again, uh, the scriptures had said that, quote, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now for those of you who have 
had Hebrew, you know that wind and spirit both translate the same Hebrew word, uh, ruah. The same word appears in both chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, that's not obviously to diminish uh, the significance of spirit in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 2, it does say that it was the spirit of God. Uh, Elohim uh, is found there in uh, 1, verse 2. And that same uh, language doesn't appear in chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 1, it seems very clearly to be referring to the Spirit of God, who we would interpret now, or at least I would, as the third person of the Trinity. And that that specificity is not found in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point isn't to downplay the Spirit in chapter 1, but the point is to see this similarity of theme that Noah's bringing out, uh, or that that Moses is bringing out in his writing of this account. Uh, Moses seems to be intentionally evoking the scene of the original creation account. He seems to be drawing attention to the fact that creation has almost been undone in the flood, and it's then being redone or recreated after the flood. Uh, You get the same idea when you get to chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Uh, In verses 15 through 17, God is speaking of how the animals, uh, once they've been unleashed from the ark, how they're supposed to go and abound and be fruitful and multiply. And the same words that are used to describe uh, what they're supposed to do in chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, those are the same words that were used in chapter 1, verse 22, to record God's original instructions to the animals at the creation. You know, again, in his writing of Genesis, uh, Moses seems to be, really none too subtly, it seems to me, making the point that in the flood, God is almost, you could say, undoing the creation. And then after the flood, He is recreating uh, His creation. And the, 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 point of, the point of that, it seems to me, is to make clear to us uh, the enormity of God's judgment in the flood. Uh, God isn't just judging the creation. Uh, he's showing His power over the creation. It's not just His creation that He can judge, but his, it's His creation that He can control in every way. Uh, God is utterly and unstoppably sovereign over every part of the creation. There's no limit on His power over the creation. Uh, He's able even to uncreate it. Uh, He's showing not only His power and His ability to judge, but He's showing His power and His ability to pull the strings of reality. He can undo reality if it's His will. Uh, That's the the, uh, just unspeakably radical nature of the judgment at the flood. Uh, It is a a truly cataclysmic judgment in which God shows not only His judgment against sin, but also His utter control over the realm in which sin is occurring. God isn't just judging sin. He's showing that there is no fetter on His control of the realm in which which sin is occurring. God's uh, making a, a very majestic display of His power. But then after that, Judgment, well, looks like uh, we'll, we'll get to after the judgment next week. Um, but that's the, the, uh, the, the nature of the judgment that, that God brings in the flood. Um, like I said, I apologize that this class is so 
obscenely short, maybe mercifully short, uh, in y'all's opinion. But uh, I do. Have, if anybody has any questions, I, I can have, I have a couple minutes. I could ask, answer a couple questions before we have to. Before we have to break. Well, it, it's it's one of those areas in the early chapters of Genesis where there's you know, a great deal of uncertainty, uh, and a lot of times you do get the interpretation, um, even that the what was that the waters above are essentially just rain clouds, uh, and the the firmament is the air between the ground and the rain clouds, um, and you know, it's I suppose it's hard to speak with you know unshakable certainty, but uh, the, the word that is used every other time. Every, every other time it's used, it does refer to a, a, a flat, hard, solid mass. Uh, so um, it seems to me that the, the weight of the language is for us to take it as some sort of a hard mass. And you know, now how the sun, um, you know, presumably the sun was under this mass, so it was not as if it was blocking out the sun. Um, so then you get, you, know, you wonder, you know, where was the how far out from the earth was it? Was it, I guess, as I said, like a roof to the entire universe, or you know, how it's hard to know exactly how it looked or the form it took. But the the way that the creation account reads, it seems to have been some solid mass that was literally supporting the upper waters. Some definable. It was some definable level on top of which there was a definable mass of water. So then when the in the flood, when it says that God opened the windows of heaven, the thought will be that he literally somehow peeled back or opened that solid mass and the water above came crashing down beneath. So it's one of those things where if you, if you, you know, in certain crowds I can get you some funny looks, like you're a little bit of a, a nut job. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, it, in the scriptures, there are any number of things uh, that, outside of the scriptures, we wouldn't know. You know, that's the the purpose of special revelation. Um, and I think, particularly when you get back to the creation of the world, you know, the only people—well, there's nobody there to see the creation, and the, you know, anybody who saw it in its early form is long since gone. Um, but God was there, and God was doing it, and so I think we have to take His account of what occurred and how it occurred, even when it seems really unrecognizable in our experience. So that, you know, there must have been some, some roof and a bunch of water over top of it that then wasn't replaced after the, after the flood. It's in chapter 7, 11, and 12. It's that whole um, account of the... Well, the... Um, potentially, um, it, seem, it seems that the, the point that... The, to me, the, the, the point that's being made is that um, 
whatever it was that had been holding, when the lower waters had been divided into the seas and the dry land, whatever it was that was pinning them up was broken down and they came crashing back into place. Um, but the, you know, the, the language of uh, fountains of the great deep you know, does seem to give some indication of waters coming up from beneath. But likewise, the, the, the term that's used there in chapter 7 for great deep is the, is the same Hebrew language that's used back in chapter 1 um, in um, verse 2. Where it says that dark, that um, it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. It's the same the same Hebrew term is used in both places, which lends you to think that whatever this great deep was in chapter seven, it's the same waters that were being mentioned in verse two of chapter one, and the the account never says that those waters were submerged under the earth in any way, but rather that they were pent up. So when it says that the fountains of the great deep were broken up, at least my reading of it would be that since it's these same waters and rather than being submerged, they've been either put above or pent up below, that what, what's being communicated in chapter 7 is that uh, the divisions below were destroyed and um, they all came back. Of course, that's not to diminish the fact that there was rain. It says you know, that the, uh, the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It's not as if it was just a, a snap um, unleashing. And there evidently was some duration to it, but that seems to be where the water came from, both above and beneath. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.